shoot podcast where i your host ashley france howell tell the stories of black victims of police brutality you can support the show by going to buymeacoffee.com slash hudspod today i'll be telling you the stories of chinadu okobi and alberta spruill welcome to episode 24 Chinadu Valentine Okobi was born on February 13, 1982, in San Francisco, California. He grew up in a neighborhood called Diamond Heights, which is in central San Francisco. Chinadu was the youngest son of five siblings in a Nigerian-American family. He attended Morehouse College in Atlanta and graduated in 2003 with a degree in business administration. While in school, he met his college sweetheart and they had a daughter together, Christina. After graduating, Chinadu moved back to California and lived in the Bay Area. It was said that, quote, he was someone people connected to all his life. He was a kind person. He loved poetry. He recorded poetry. He recorded rap. He was also very spiritual and deeply religious, end quote. Chinadu maintained a job at Home Depot for a few years, but he lost his job in January of 2018. His sister, Ebele Okobi, who actually works for Facebook as the public policy director for Africa, the Middle East, and Turkey, believed that the cause of Chinadu losing his job was related to the mental health issues he had been facing for the past 10 years. And the fact that he may have stopped taking his medications or that they had stopped working in the months prior to his death. Chinadu's family was beginning to become more and more worried they noticed that he sort of seemed unstable and would often not contact them for long periods of time. It was said that Chinadu used his unemployment check to send child support to Tennessee, where his 12-year-old daughter lived with her mom. On October 3rd, 2018, Chinadu was out in Millbury, California. Now, it's unclear where Chenadu was going or where he was coming from, but based on dash cam footage and cell phone footage, he was traveling with a few bags. Deputy Joshua Wang was driving and saw Chenadu crossing the road, but he was jaywalking and was nearly hit by passing cars. So Deputy Wang began to drive and pursue Chinadu, who was on foot. When he finally caught up to him, he told Chinadu to stop, but Chinadu crossed the street again to avoid Deputy Wang. And so that's when Deputy Wang called for backup. 
So I watched a couple versions of videos that included dash cam footage, as well as some cell phone footage. And in one video, Deputy Wang manages to get in front of Chinadu and then he gets out of the car. So as Deputy Wang approaches Chinadu, Chinadu raises his hands sort of in a surrendering position and deputies Alyssa Lorenzati, John Demartini, Brian Watt, and Sergeant David Widener were responding to Deputy Wang's call around the same time. So while Chinadu's hands are up, the responding officers all run up to him and grab him at the same time. They yell at him to stop resisting or he would get tased. Chenadu then gets out of their grips and tries to run away from them. And within seconds, this is where he is tased for the first time. The police claim that he was running towards Deputy Wang, but when you watch the video, it looks like he is trying to run away from the officers. And so after that first taser deployment, Chinadu falls quickly to the ground asking, what did I do? And he was also calling for help. There were a few other things that he said that sort of made me think that maybe there was some mental health issues at hand. And I think the police should have recognized that as well. So when he falls, Chinadu lands on his back with his hands and legs in the air. He's screaming from the pain of the taser. And the officers are constantly yelling at Chinadu to turn around and lie on his stomach. Then in the minute or so after that, he is tased six more times because Deputy Wang said that, quote, Chinadu was resisting, agitated, speaking incoherently and excited, end quote. Even after being tased seven times, Chinadu manages to get up and run away from the officers. They chase after him and Deputy Wang swings his baton at Chinadu. And Chinadu punches the deputy in return. The officers then tackle him to the ground and attempt to handcuff him. They tried using pepper spray but was ineffective and it even hit another officer. They were able to handcuff Chinadu and put him in a sitting position while calling for an ambulance. And they soon realized that Chinadu no longer had a pulse. So when the paramedics got there, they attempted to perform life-saving measures, but it was too late. He had gone into cardiac arrest. Chinadu was 36 years old. The medical examiner ruled Chinadu's cause of death as, quote, cardiac arrest following physical exertion, physical restraint, and recent electromuscular disruption. Chinadu's death was ruled a homicide. That same day, San Mateo County Sheriff's Office issued a statement 
saying that deputies saw Chenadu, quote, running in and out of traffic around 1 p.m., end quote, and that Chenadu, quote, immediately assaulted, end quote, a deputy who got out of his vehicle. So again, based on the video, this was a lie. You can see Deputy Wang approach Chenadu, who in turn put his hands up, but then he tried running away when the other officers started coming towards him. A few days later, Chenadu's sister, Abele, posted on social media that her family had watched videos of the encounter and her brother was, quote, getting tortured to death in broad daylight. They were shocking because they contradicted in every single particular the statement that the San Mateo County Sheriff's Office released and to which San Mateo District Attorney Steve Wagstaff referred in multiple news outlets after my brother's murder. That's the crazy thing. Privilege does not protect you in any way. I have been struck by the responses from people I know. I don't believe this happened to you, end quote. The officers were placed on administrative leave for a short time, but they were able to return to duty by October 31st. So death by taser was apparently a problem in San Mateo County. Chinadu was the third person in 10 months who died as a result of being tased. And the county district attorney, Steve Wagstaff, was in the hot seat because of his decision. In March 2019, he announced that he would not pursue criminal charges against the deputies and the sergeant. On May 31, 2019, a wrongful death lawsuit was filed against all of the officers by attorney John Burris on behalf of Chinadu's mom, Maureen Okobi. The suit alleged that sheriff's deputies conducted an illegal stop and used excessive force which caused Chinadu's death. The suit also mentions basically that the officers should have exercised more caution when they tased Chinadu as they should have had the knowledge that excessive use of a taser could lead to death. The suit is about 15 pages long, and I'll add a link to it in the show's sources. This is still ongoing, so of course, when I have an update, I'll let you guys know. And that family was the story of Chenadu Okobi. Now I'm going to tell you the story of Alberta Spruill. If you remember what happened in episode 22 about Carlos Elsis, this story is pretty similar. Alberta Spruill was born in 1946. And not much is known about her childhood and her family, but what we do know is that she had at least two sisters. They were Geraldine Wooden and Hallis Pinckney. Alberta lived alone in an apartment in Harlem, New York, and she was known as, quote, hardworking and devout and someone who minded her own business, end quote. She was also a member of the Covenant Avenue Baptist Church. 
Alberta was getting ready to retire from her job of 29 years with the city government at the Department of Citywide Administrative Services. She would be retiring at the end of her 30th year. On May 5, 2003, an informant walked into the 25th Precinct in New York City to tell the police that he got his drugs from a man named Melvin Boswell. He also gave the police Melvin's address. He said Melvin was at 310 West 143rd Street on the ninth floor. The informant also told them that since Melvin was on parole, he kept his drugs and guns in a different apartment in the building, apartment 6F. He began to describe how the apartment was laid out and where the drugs were. The officers were also informed about dogs that were kept in the apartment, as well as a gun that Melvin kept on his person and other people in the apartment that were armed. The next day, on May 6, the police got a search warrant signed by Judge Patricia M. Nunez. It helped that they were able to verify that Melvin had a long criminal record. And so this would be a no-knock warrant. Unrelated to the warrant, on Monday, May 12, 2003, Melvin was actually arrested somewhere else in Harlem on felony narcotics charges. And he also confirmed that his address was 310 West 143rd Street. Around 6 a.m. on Friday, May 16th, Alberta was getting ready for work. At the same time, about six members of the New York Emergency Service Unit, um, think of something similar to SWAT, and about six officers from the 25th Precinct were getting ready to execute that no-knock warrant on the apartment they thought housed drugs and criminals, which again was apartment 6F. Little do they know, they received bad information from the informant and they would shortly be entering Alberta's apartment. At 6.10 in the morning, they broke through the door with a battering ram. When they got in the apartment, they threw a flash grenade. They handcuffed Alberta, and after seeing that she was the only person in the apartment and the layout was different from what they were told, they realized that the information they received was wrong. So they let her go and apologized. Alberta then told them that she had a heart condition. So they offered her an ambulance and she declined it at first, but once she started having trouble breathing, they called one anyway. Just before seven o'clock, Alberta went into cardiac arrest while she was on the way to Harlem Hospital Center. She was pronounced dead at the hospital at 7.50 a.m. Alberta was 57 years old. Police Commissioner Raymond W. Kelly said that it was unclear whether or not any surveillance of the building or the apartment was conducted before they even conducted the search warrant. Eric Adams, who was the spokesperson for 100 Blacks in law enforcement, said that the no-knock warrants were most often based on information from unreliable informants. 
Commissioner Kelly also said that this was the first time that the informant had shared information with the police department, even though he was registered as a confidential informant. According to an article from the New York Times, quote, Commissioner Kelly ordered an investigation of the entire incident and suspended the use of grenades. Mr. Kelly said that the police, who have executed more than 1,900 search warrants this year, went to the wrong address four times and used grenades in 85 instances. End quote. Lieutenant who supervised the raid was put on administrative duty during the investigation. One similar instance of this happened to a 40-year-old woman named Cynthia Chapman, who also lived in Harlem. She said that police burst into her apartment on 1st Avenue and 114th Street because they believed that there were guns and drugs inside. And Cynthia's 15-year-old son was also home with her. She said she saw a gun and ran and even yelled at the police to please don't kill her. Both Cynthia and her son were arrested and police even shot through her fish tank. Later on, they realized they got the wrong apartment and only offered an apology. Famous lawyer Johnny Cochran announced that he would be filing a $500 million lawsuit against the New York Police Department, the city, and the officers involved in the raid. In October 2003, the city paid $1.6 million to Alberta's family. This was a lot less than the $500 million they were asking for, but it was one of the quickest settlements that occurred at just over five months after Alberta's death. And that family was the story of Alberta Spruill. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for Hudspod. And you can support the show by going to buymeacoffee.com slash Hudspod. Remember, Hudspot is spelled H-U-D-S-P-O-D. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you get the latest episodes. And if you don't mind, please leave me a five-star review. Stay safe, and I'll see you next week.